The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Martin Eden from director Pietro Marcello. Based on the classic novel by Jack London, this Venice and Toronto award winner was an official selection of the 57th New York Film Festival and comes to theaters starting April 17th. This week's podcast is sponsored by the River Run International Film Festival, March 26th through April 5th, featuring a film noir classic with Gigi Peru and a 70th anniversary screening of In a Lonely Place. Info at riverrunfilm.com slash getaway. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. This week, the Film Comment Podcast reports from the Berlin International Film Festival, straight from, you guessed it, Berlin. It's one of the year's major festivals, and the 2020 edition has been highly anticipated because of its new leadership and an impressive slate of films. We'll be talking about the highlights, including new movies from Christian Petzold, Hong Sang-soo, and Abel Ferrara, as well as Natalia Meta's El Profugo and Viktor Kazakovsky's Gunda. I'll be joined by Devika Girish, our assistant editor, and a few special guests. Also check out our website for more in-depth coverage on the festival and filmmakers. Let's go now to our latest conversation in Berlin. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment, and we are continuing our reports from the Berlin International Film Festival located in, you guessed it, Berlin. And uh, we've had a few reports already. And for our latest edition, I'm very pleased to be joined by... Jonathan Romney. Uh, who's a contributing editor of Film Comment and also um, filing for... Uh, the Observer and Screen Daily. Very busy. <laughs> and... Devi Gagirish, assistant editor, co-pilot, <laughs> sous chef... Yeah. Yeah. Have you used them all? <laughs> I think so. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, and so, well, let's, let's um, dive right in since I think by now all of us have seen a fair number of films that we haven't even talked at all about. Um, but one object of great curiosity, I think, uh, is the film Dow. But to call it a film is maybe not even sufficient because it's part of a larger project. Jonathan actually wrote about the larger project. Maybe you can fill us in where this fits in. Okay, so the film in competition is actually called Dao Natasha. And there's also a six-hour film, which I believe is uh, destined to be a TV series called Dao Degeneration. Um, Dao is, um, you know, it's really a completely unique project, for better or worse, um, by the director Ilya Hrzanovsky. Um, who several years ago these stories went round and magazine reports started appearing saying that he had built um, practically a city. You know, it was a set, a huge set that was meant to be um, a scientific research facility in Stalin era USSR and that he'd got a bunch of actors well in fact they were non-professionals they were in fact real life in real life they were scientists and researchers and there were several other artists and various people peter sellers marina abramovich had signed up for this and people were actually living on the set for i think two years i don't know you know exactly what the statistics were but they were living on the set living in the kind of day-to-day life of uh, 1950s Soviet 
certain people um, in in this weird sort of um, performance art, conceptual art, massive project, which was destined to result in a film or films. And in the end, he ended up making, I think, 13 films. I'm not sure if the two films seen here are part of that cycle or whether they're separate. Um, but what I wrote about last year was um, an installation in Paris uh, in two separate theatres plus a, a floor of the Pompidou Centre in which uh, you got to see several films and there were installations and performances r vaguely related one way or another to um, Stalin-era Russia. But the four films I watched... Um, having seen, you know, the really spectacular um, stills from the set, uh, were very disappointing. Uh, they were very enclosed, claustrophobic chamber pieces, and it made me wonder where any of these films would actually hold its own in the context of a film festival competition. Uh, so what did you think? Did you think it did? Ah, uh, Okay. So like I was saying before we started recording, I didn't quite know what to make of the film. I went in fairly uninformed. Uh, basically, the only two things I knew was that there was a related exhibition in Paris with these uh, other parts and that he had filmed 100 hours of footage, which, uh, you know, seemed incredibly ambitious and strange. And because of the exhibition that preceded it I was expecting something more arty or non-narrative so I was actually really surprised by how strongly narrative driven it was narrative and character driven um, and I was really very engrossed um, and it was about two hours 20 minutes and I I, I I think we can say that it's in about two parts. There's a pretty significant switch. And like you said, it's a chamber drama. So most of it takes place in one location. And the last 30 to 40 minutes are in another very enclosed location. And for the initial part, it's this uh, research center, sort of a nuclear uh, research center. Uh, there's all these scientists. And then the action focuses on two women who work in the canteen, one of them being Natasha, who the film is named after, uh, who's sort of older. And then there's a younger assistant named Olya. And they're very strange catty but also quite codependent relationship and their relationships with the other scientists just sort of following those and what I was really struck by was that the setting was so seemed so specific and dystopian uh, and there's these strange experiments happening uh, where these scientists are closing men up in these uh, sort of orgone accumulator. Yeah, this yeah. Was, these were experiments that Wilhelm Reich apparently did whenever uh, the idea was that some sort of energy would accumulate and that uh, these so Soviet soldiers, if they sit in this pyramid long enough, they'll become sort of Captain super Russia. soldiers with sort of perfect endurance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Russia, yeah, <laughs> and so there's all of this taking place, but the focus is really on Natasha's feelings of discontent and romantic... Uh, dissatisfaction and her clear envy of her uh, partner, her assistant's youth. And I found all that very moving. You know, she has this tryst with a, a French scientist. And then the next day she, or, or later she meets him in the canteen. And you can just see her trying to sort of get some 
sign of affection from him and when he doesn't she just breaks down and has this hysterical <laughs> sort of long uh, she takes it out on her assistant and i was just kind of surprised by how the film was focusing on something that was so i mean relatable is a cheap word but you know something so accessible and that doesn't even seem necessarily like off the period it, it just something very present and something i could really emotionally connect to and i found that really surprising but then it switches into something else more of a political drama where she is interrogated and basically tortured uh because of her actions that take place in the first half of the film that she didn't know what the consequences would be and even though that was absolutely riveting it was also just kind of purely sadistic and since again i didn't know where this was fitting in in a big picture if this was just a film by itself it would feel to me like an exercise in sadism that wasn't fully warranted and there's a really disturbing dimension to it for me which is that uh, none of the cast are professionals and however he has done it and however he's persuaded to do it somehow you know he's persuaded people to expose themselves you know emotionally and physically in very graphic scenes you know emotionally intense scenes uh you know when you see them drunk you know you assume they are drunk but the sex appeared to be real and in the other episodes i saw you know i was absolutely 90% 99% sure that the sex was real and it was disturbing and it played out at great length but one of the things that that you know perhaps i wasn't picking up so much on the the kind of emotional directness or the nuance in this one because having seen for other of the films and and a bit of the other footage as well i very much felt i'd been there before so i was at a disadvantage but one of the strange things about all of the films i've seen is that um you know you're aware that um this is all happening on this extraordinary um spectacular monumental set of which you see practically nothing you know there are two night exteriors in this but everything goes on in one house and in a series of rooms and then you have a scene in the lab and you have a scene in the interrogation block underneath um apparently there is an episode which um a lot of people uh found very disturbing in in one of the other films where it's basically two men two cleaners who get extremely drunk and then have sex and when i interviewed some of the other people involved in the production they said to me oh no but that's what they do in real life every night they get drunk and they have sex so somehow people have been you know persuaded to offer themselves up on the screen this film is is perhaps more narratively coherent or more narratively complete than some of the others i saw but i did have this very disturbing sense first of all that we're getting access to some sort of social experiment which if you see this film you lose that context so you don't know what's going on around it you don't know how it fits into the jigsaw um and the other thing that um disturbed me about it was that i don't know actually there are many things that disturbed me about it but <laughs> it um you know there is a sense almost of seeing a film but you don't really know what you're being given access to uh i felt i felt very uncomfortable for the actress because you know she's not an actress and this is the first time i guess she will have seen this but i was sort of wondering 
what it's going to be like for her. And I, I'm told that what she does now is she works in a dress shop. But I imagine what it's going to be like for her arriving at an international festival and the whole world is going to be seeing her, you know, in this very graphic sex scene and then in this very full-on torture scene, which is, you know, where her, her spirit is being broken um, by this interrogation process and... You know, this is the kind of thing that, you know, non-professionals, if they work with someone like Ken Loach, um, filmmakers like that have a really rigorous ethical process of working with people, working with them after the film. This project is so monumental. It's interesting, if you read the press kit, it's like this cascade of statistics, how many hours and how how many people were involved. And I just sort of wonder, will all the non-actors in the film get the same kind of, you know, after-sales care right. that right. the most ethical directors of non-professionals would get? Yeah. Did you have any sense during your reporting uh, what these non-actors' involvement was like and uh, any sense of their experience? Um there are certainly lots of stories going around suggesting i mean i'd read other stories and there were rumors about people being uncomfortable and people feeling that they'd signed up for something that was you know of the nature of a cult this is all you know on the level of rumor but there was certainly you know they they are the, the filmmakers are very insistent and the spokesperson i met last week who who kind of introduced us to the film in their spectacular offices in London, uh, which are made to look like, you know, 1930s Russia. Um, they, uh, they said, you know, that no, there were no hidden cameras and no one was coerced and no one was, you know, caught out in any way. I just wonder, I wonder about, you know, the, the degree of control or the degree of lack of control in a project like this. And also the thing, the thing that has been kind of eating away at me, given that I think, you know, these days one has to have a certain, you know, responsibility with economics, is the, the astonishing amount of money that appears to have been spent on this massive project, even down to publishing, you know, weekly or monthly newspapers for the people on the set so that they could kind of think themselves into the Soviet-era mindset. Mm. Um, I can't believe how much money has been spent on this, and yet he seems to have made a series of films about people talking in rooms. And you think... Really? What's what's this all add up right. to? Yeah, I did uh, wonder a little bit um, how much because the film has been preceded by so much conversation that like how much it is selling its monumentality and it's kind of trading on the narrative, which ha which happens and has happened with a lot of films in history, but often by accident. And this film is very much very deliberately creating that sort of narrative. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure, also having just seen one piece, whether it's worth it, but it does make me very suspicious. Also, the in the credits, some of the names were in boxes, and I don't know if this is true. Uh, that means that people have died. Yeah, the guy who plays the um, the other scientist who's looking after the, you know, who invites the French scientist. Um, I didn't realize this, because I actually saw him in Paris last year, and he was walking around. Alexei Blinov, who in real life was a sound... 
artist and electronic engineer um and apparently i only discovered yesterday when i looked him up to write the review turned out that he he died fairly recently and i think you know some people are no longer around and just because of the length of the project to some extent or um i think so yeah i believe he was ill but um you know it, it it is this massive project i mean the the as a piece of conceptual art it is fascinating to write about mm. and i found it fascinating to write about in a way that didn't really measure against you know the actual result of the films i thought the films were interesting but there are people making films like that elsewhere in the world you know without, there are without yeah, yeah. all that yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah and and that very intense you know sort of hyper expressive uh almost uh, Cassavetes style emotional drama well yeah several romanian directors have done that extremely well and much more cheaply so, <laughs> so i'm not sure that you know it it's part of a spirit of dao to to judge a single film as a film but that's the thing you know once you get to an international film festival like this and the competition like berlin that's how you ju- everything is judged on equal terms and you can't make the you can't bring in those sort of extracurricular elements to yeah. to kind of make special pleading for you know something as cosmically huge as dal yeah because it it really does have the feeling of of a piece of something larger just because it's partly constructed out of these really large pieces you know itself that don't necessarily cohere into um its own feature structure um and yeah you definitely it, there's sometimes like just this gluey sense of of the continuity of the time and and the reality you just think you know it's okay to cut um but at other times you do get this really natural rapport between between people especially in the canteen i mean in that point it's like you know it, it can be hard to capture that just sort of easy give and take and and the familiarity you have between people who work together whereby they can despise each other but also you know <laughs> um have banter um so that's interesting i mean the 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 camera work there's something about the sound that also somehow made you feel like it was on a on a stage or a set sound stage um is very i was always aware of an echo you know <laughs> beyond things so I don't know how intentional that was but it does add to the feeling of a kind of staginess to one, it. One of the things I noticed which is quite weird actually is that the house in which the action takes place at the the domestic action mm-hmm. seemed to be exactly the same place that several other characters homes were in in the other episodes so they seem to use the same setting over and over again and it is visually kind of murky yeah um, yeah, yeah. A, i didn't really get the sense of a real place i got i got the sense of a set yeah. that didn't feel yeah you know. which is not bad necessarily i mean they certainly go as far as they can in terms of getting particular ashtrays and, and you know all of that and, and and the details of how they're dressed you know so that you know the they're wearing many layers um which apparently are... on set even the condoms were repackaged in authentic stalin era condom packaging <laughs> what more can you ask for for authenticity well so i mean that's that's dow natasha who knows what other characters will will be following at, at some point um, and so you said degeneration as a tv series um apparently but it's a 6 hour it it actually as i understand it it rounds up the whole thing it tells you what happens later on and you know there is a sort of dramatic uh climax to the whole 
to the whole story of uh, the, um, the 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 research center, which is um, which is headed by a man called Dow, who does not appear in Natasha, but actually his wife and son do right at the beginning, and having seen another episode which involves them in very unpleasant situation i just kind of also had that sort of shudder of Ugh, i don't quite feel comfortable with this mm-hmm. yeah it makes kitchen, a kitchen sink drama seem pretty tame of any sort or you know bella's heart just seem pretty upbeat the film comment podcast is sponsored by kino lorber presenting martin eden from director pietro marcello Based on the classic novel by Jack London and an official selection of the 57th New York Film Festival, the film stars Luca Marinelli in a marvelously committed performance that won him the Best Actor Prize at Venice. Writing for Film Comment, Imogen Sarah Smith called it a kaleidoscopic historical fantasia that seems possessed by the ghosts of Italian cinema. Martin Eden opens April 17th at Film at Lincoln Center and IFC Center before expanding to select cities. This week's podcast is sponsored by the 22nd River Run International Film Festival, March 26th through April 5th in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, featuring over 170 films from 41 countries. This year's archival spotlight features films by Rod Serling with special guests Anne Serling and Planet of the Apes makeup effects artist Tom Berman. Travel packages at riverrunfilm.com slash getaway. Well, so that's Dow Natasha, um, another film that um, certainly Hong watchers amongst us were, were quite excited about, um, was the woman who ran, um, which I mean, I'll just start off by saying very little technically happens and it's probably the most delightful and for me, like moving movie I've seen at the festival. Um, it, it basically, basically starts off with just someone visiting a couple of visiting friend and then it's meetings after that. Um, but there isn't the, the thing that some people have sort of described in terms of almost being a crutch of people just getting drunk and like, bearing their souls to each other and embarrassing themselves. These are really just like finely observed and kind of miraculously written little vignettes between friends where kind of the cliche, you know, a, a lot is a lot is conveyed without necessarily not being spoken. There are a lot of just very delicate emotional currents going on between, between friends. Um, the first one, you know, uh, is a, Kim Min-hee plays the kind of protagonist of the story she visits an old friend who's remarried who hasn't remarried has recently um divorced and is now living w- from a man and is now living with a woman and that's a something that kind of just seeps into your consciousness as it goes on because and and develops in a nice way um and then there's a prominently featured cat who has probably the highlight zoom highlight of the festival i have to say um almost like a reaction shot like uh anyway but um it, that's that's great and then she you know spend some time with another friend and has anxieties over where the friend is at in their life. And they have some like undermine kind of <laughs> exchanges and it kind of goes on from there and she runs into an old, old flame as well. Um, but I just, I, you know, after, after a number of movies that for me were, were, you know, kind of halfway there uh, or, or were imperfect, imperfect in, in significant ways. This one I was just completely delighted with. Did not feel like Hong just kind of retreading the same territory either. Um, and yeah, I don't know. That's that's my endorsement. I, this is such a strange movie to talk about after Dow. It's just, you, know, <laughs> right, right. you go from this massive you know expensive yeah, yeah yeah display of showmanship and then hong just makes a film that feels effortless you know not try hard in any way that's the thing it doesn't even 
I, there's a lo lot of films I have like, but they all do feel a little bit like these prestige films made for right. the festival. And there's, yeah, there's just such a lightness to this film. Mm -hmm. um, and this associative kind of logic that it moves through. I I know that, I mean, Hong has done this before and most recently in On the Beach uh, at Night Alone, mm -hmm. uh, kind of depicting just sociality between women. Mm -hmm. But that is the entirety of this film. I don't, mm -hmm. I can't think of any recent film of his that has devoted itself completely to that space. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I realized after a while, I mean, men only appear twice in the film. Mm -hmm. One in the absolutely stunningly hilarious and lovely episode with the cat oh. <laughs> and you just see this this man is, is, yeah. is back to the camera sad sack neighbor yeah by. and it, it's this like passive aggressively polite exchange about yeah. some stray cats um and and it goes into this love it's this debate about whether cats are more important than people what do you think nick i i, I probably shouldn't incriminate myself <laughs> Um, at a later date, when 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 the cats do rule the world, um, <laughs> I just know that I support them. Mm. Um, but yeah, and then the second time you see a man is towards the very end of the film, and that's where maybe the film gets closer to some of the themes of other recent films, uh, just infidelities and wounds that have been sort of held for a long time. What I thought was really missing from this film, in a good way, not like this film was lacking. There's no like self-loathing really. Obviously, there are characters at uh, various stages of life and they have certain resentments that sometimes come through. Uh, but this is not really a film of revelations, of... Um, you know, he, yeah. Out, uh, outbursts. That yeah, it's a different rhythm, which yeah. is I think really good for it. And and like you said, you know, there's no need for like soju coaxed. <laughs> moments of bearing soul bearing here mm. which means that actually some of the conversation is not even that interesting it is genuinely small talk you mm -hmm. know it's like just talking about nothing for minutes on end um but it, it's that sense of sociality i just could com I, I was able to without the dialogue necessarily hooking me i was able to just occupy that space between two friends or meeting after a long time in both the first two chapters um and yeah, we're just kind of filling filling the air with talk and slowly kind of warming their relationship again, which is what happens mm -hmm. when you visit friends after a long time yeah. and just learning the details of their lives, which are mm -hmm. very ordinary lives, which are ordinary sort of middle class lives, which have their dramatic moments, but dramatic in the way that all of our lives are. Mm -hmm. uh, and those details just being traded like that. And I really thought Kim Minhee was fantastic mm -hmm. uh, especially because it was such a light role where there were no big moments for her there was not except for the end there's not even any baggage uh, you know there's no transformation it's just her floating through the film you know just floating and entering other people's bubbles and exiting them and to do that and still feel so compelling uh, and smooth I thought was really remarkable yeah, I mean, she does a lot with 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 underplaying a lot of things, and um, just there's a lot of kind of I don't know, um, yeah, just delicacy to how she handles her character's position, which is that she's clearly in, in in a marriage where she's continuing to repeat how it works to people, as if to convince herself, uh, which is basically that they never are apart, and that's 
good. That's apparently how he wants it to work, and that's fine. That's good, and and uh, that becomes just kind of this running motif that she's trying to like talk it into right. Positivity. But and but he, the film never comes back to that. I thought that maybe towards the end the film would return to her relationship with her husband, which is again referenced in these sort of empty statements about how they've never been a part a single day in five years but it doesn't it just leaves it out there you know it doesn't the film doesn't really dig into that and that makes it feel more significant uh and it it i don't want to say too much but it ends with such a nice kind of return to cinema Mm -hmm. and that reframes the rest of the film a little bit yeah Uh, yeah yeah it's it's uh i mean there's a movie theater involved I'll say that much. Um, and uh, one other thing I want to mention was the a neat bit of uh, music, the uh, musical motif that comes up. Uh, they It seems to be like a tape recording, like literally an audio cassette recording that they're using. So it has this really tinny sound, but uh, somehow that just feels more domestic was the word that came to mind a lot when I was, when I was and just, I don't know, homey, um, something about that. And that it feels echoed in some of the look of the digital, actually, which sometimes... Um, yeah, it has not, I wouldn't say a harsh feel, but um, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's The Woman Who Ran, a title that we were just trying to figure out, but I guess is part of its mystery. Um, and I know I'm forgetting something obvious. At some point, she probably broke into a run and I just missed it. I mean, maybe she ran from her husband. I, okay. That's the in- interpretation I'm making, but it could be completely wrong. Yeah, I don't know. It also makes me think of this title of one of the stories in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is the gal who got spooked or something like that, the gal. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, there's the uh, Lafdiaz, the woman who left. Oh, okay. So, oh, yeah. That's so maybe true. she's like her, but she just left faster. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the pitch. He's like, that's the comp. Lafdiaz, except faster. And shorter. And shorter. <laughs> um, well, um, we actually might have to bring this uh, into our last chapter of, of this particular episode. But, Jonathan, there were a couple of movies that we'd love to hear from you about. Um, one of them was Bad Tales. Yeah, this is um, this is the filming competition that most excited me in terms of sort of seeing something new that I didn't know about. I mean, it's not an extraordinary film, but it's a very good one, and it's very fresh. Uh, and it's by um, two young Italian directors, the uh, Dinocenzo brothers. I didn't see their first film. Um, Boys Cry, which is apparently much straighter. This one is very heavily stylized, and it's basically about uh, a bunch of families living in a suburb of Rome. It's a long, hot summer movie, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And it's about the kids having a terrible time with each other and with their parents. And things we've seen before, you know... um, grouchy, uh, sweaty dads becoming brutal, um, kids experimenting uh, with uh, premature sex and then, you know, sort of mercifully um, running uh, in terror at the last minute. (laughs) Um, There are elements of, you know, stylistically an atmosphere. It made me think of those kind of Texan and Californian summers you see in films like um, The Virgin Suicides and Boyhood. Um, A lot of, I suspect that this film is kind of channeling those films reference to 
William Eggleston's photographs. But at the same time, it's very heavily stylized in a way that made me think, you know, it's pushing the style slightly a la Sorrentino, but not quite as knowingly strange or surreal. There's a real kind of grace to it. You know, there's, there's a very strange um, unsettling preface in which... Um, an adult male narrator is talking about accidentally finding a diary which seems to be the diary of a young girl which kind of runs out of pages. So he's reading her text and then he says he's continued writing it. Um, but the story we're about to see is based on a true story which in its turn is based on a lie. So by the time you're a couple of minutes into this film... You have to give me a second film, for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and by the time you, you get into the story, you, you're completely disoriented. Um, it's confusing because, you know, you, you, you keep losing track of whose um, sweaty, angry dad is, is, is which child's. Um, but there are some extraordinary moments in it, uh, including a terrible scene in which uh, one of the uh, children starts choking at dinner and the dad, instead of doing, you know, um, the Heimlich maneuver and, and kind of, you know, are you all right, son, uh, gets really angry and starts shaking him upside down and, you know, now look what you've done. Um, there are some sequences which are comic until they're not. Um, and there's a real sense of place and a real sense of disturbance and just of everyday madness. You feel very uncomfortable watching it. And then there's an absolutely extraordinary moment at the end. It's one of those films where you see the actors and the directors absolutely holding their nerve in the sense that something terrible happens and it's off screen and one of the characters sees it and then responds in a way we don't expect and the scene just plays out. And it's a real kind of virtuoso piece of pacing. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think some people might feel it was manipulative. It struck me that there was real invention and real bravery there. The music is very unusual. Um, so I don't know who it's by because there isn't actually a music credit, but... Uh, it uses pieces of that kind of nervy string scraping um, modern classical. I don't know, it's written uh, especially for the film. But it just struck me that there was a real strangeness and a real grace. And the young cast are absolutely extraordinary. Um, there are some older, uh, well-known actors, Italian actors, uh, like uh, Elio Germano. But it's the kids who really impress. Mm. And... A couple of, you know, sort of narrative curveballs that, wow, I can't believe they did that. I'm not quite sure why they did that. <laughs> but it's a really, it's a terrific um, second film by by people whose work you want to keep an eye on. Yeah. I mean, I just, it's funny, since you were just mentioning, you saw a film in the King Vidor retrospective that reminded me because you just said this is a long hot summer and you saw street scene which is yeah, also street scene which is extraordinary from the early 30s which i think was turned into an opera by kurt file uh but it's most of the film is people standing on the street talking um and talking about each other and being really horrible about each other and it's about bigotry and it's about people just being incredibly brutal to their neighbors um 
until something terrible happens and there's a sort of brutish husband and father who you hope is not going to behave in the worst possible way and he does so in terms of you know as a film to be seen now about bigotry and social unrest and prejudice and and you know kind of radically opposed political stances you know the jewish family downstairs the father is a marxist who's kind of proclaiming that you know society must change and everyone's going ah enough of your hooey but you know it's based on um an elmer rice play and it's very much in that sort of 30s social tradition and it's fantastic but the staging is absolutely extraordinary and the way you have these very theatrical scenes of just a few people standing on the front steps and then suddenly the camera pulls back and there are crowds and there's the whole of a district of new york and it's absolutely oh. dazzling yeah right i somehow want to connect it with in a lineage of do the right thing or something i, I it some- is exactly yeah. it's yeah it's do the right thing that's that that's the film yeah um yeah because when i was watching our daily bread i kind of have to think oh did lars von trier think of this when he was making dogville because it also <laughs> and just deconstructed it um but anyway, that's the that's the King Vidor, King Vidor. We'll edit, find out how to pronounce it, and do the right one. Um, retrospective, which has just been a kind of touchstone for me here to come back to. But uh, let's try for one more movie, um, which uh, Jonathan, you were talking about, uh, which has a fascinating title: Delete History. Oh yeah, well, this is the latest movie by uh, Delépine et Kervelne, who are a French duo. Who, for some reason, everyone says everyone assumes a Belgian, but I think it's because their kind of spirit is more Belgian than French. There's a particular kind of Belgian absurdist comedy, and they also work with a lot of Belgian actors, like Benoit Poilvord, you know, the skinny guy with the long nose, and. the other guy who's oh Bully Lanels, who's who's the uh, the bearded fat guy. Also, Kerfeln uh, himself is the other bearded fat guy, and he's in a lot of the films. So this is um, a comedy about a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of neighbours who are having trouble with the modern world and particularly the online world, and you know everything, every online agony that you can have, um, everything from call centers to uh, revenge porn um, to you know sort of sex tapes which go into the cloud um, <laughs> and you know it's a sort of catalogue of horrors and Poilville turns up at one point as um, a courier from um, a company with a very um, a familiar logo it's actually called Alimazon and he turns up um, as the cyclist you know with this kind of huge box on his back carrying one of the characters supply of mineral water and you know he can barely move and they say don't worry you'll be able to retire so he's I'm 35 so there are all these gags I mean it's a, a terrific selection of gags and some work and some don't and for a lot of the time I was thinking yeah okay this is it's fun but it's kind of laborious and it's and they've done this stuff before and it's a bit obvious and then you get to the end where among other things that happens is uh the heroine um played by i think she's a a comedian um french tv comedian called blanche gardin but she goes to um san francisco and goes to somewhere that is meant to be Google HQ. I don't know. It may actually be. For all I know, it is actually Google HQ, and uh-huh. she's shot some of the exteriors 
Oh. On, a, on a GoPro or something, or her phone, I don't know. But there's a moment where she goes in and there are all these kind of rows and rows of servers and they are sex tapes from around the world. And, and the, the best gag is one of the labels says, sex tapes, Vatican. Uh, yeah. um, there's also a very funny um, payoff about uh, kind of um, counterfeit... Uh, online news which is just great and by that point you really are falling around laughing there's also uh, a cameo by uh, Michel Wellebeck who it seems you can't keep off the screen these days and he just walks in oh yeah there you go of course Michel Wellebeck just walked in you know <laughs> looking like you know he's been pickled um, and um you know, what What I like about De Lepine Carverne is, you know, they make a film a year and they're sort of hit and miss, but they always have this sort of old-fashioned anarcho-radical sensibility. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's old-school sort of French satire. You know, they're kind of from a, the generation of 68 in a way. I mean, they're younger than that, but they, they're kind of keeping those those values uh, aloft. And there's, there's a kind of a great sequence about, you know, these characters being sort of suburban gilets jaunes who sort of fought the mm. good fight two years ago, but are kind of have basically all given up now. Mm. And it's really, it's, it's a kind of angry film in a very entertaining way. Mm. Completely unrelated news. Uh, one of my complaints about the Berlinale this year is it lacks an app. <laughs> it has made my existence very tough. That <laughs> De Lepine Carvan would probably tell you that you're better off without it. <laughs> I know. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, I'm one of the slaves. That's a small revolution. You just have to recognize it yeah. as such. Um, all right. Well, that was uh, Delete History. And I think that probably brings us to the end of this episode. Um, unless you have any final uh, final thoughts. Jonathan, you've been you've been a, a, um, a veteran of the festival. Um, I, I guess, you know, good to ask since there's been, you know, some changes, how it might be different in any ways you noticed. Well, I, I think we don't know yet. Yeah. I mean, I think there have been a lot of challenges this year. Uh, the new artistic director, Carlo Chatrian from Locarno, uh, he's got a really heavyweight reputation as a cinephile and a festival director. I think um, it's been a difficult year for all kinds of reasons, not least um, the the closing of the Sinistar, you know, organisationally, that's been uh, very tough. Um, I think people haven't yet figured out what the new encounters section is meant to be or what it's going to be. And I think one of the problems with opening with the Christy Puyu film Malmkrog, which is basically a three and a half hour theology seminar, very, very beautifully shot and staged. But, you know, that's what it is based on the work of a 19th century Russian philosopher. I think programming that as the flagship film felt very much like an act of provocation. It felt like someone, not necessarily Carlo, but it felt like someone is saying, you think you're cinephiles, try this. <laughs> uh, it, they, they could have launched it, you know, with, with a lighter touch, but it's going to be really interesting to see. And I think next year is going to be the one where, you know, they're going to have to really sort of prove their stuff. I think, um, you know, under Dieter Koslick, things were getting a bit cosy for many, many years. I think because it's the 70th year, they needed fireworks. There haven't really been fireworks next year, but, you know, I know that the new regime um, has a lot of goodwill going for it. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, I think we should, uh, we should support it. And I hope that... Um, 
Berlin can, um, you know, give us that oomph next year. <laughs> but it hasn't been a bad year at all. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true, yeah. Well, here's to oomph. Um, der oomph. Der oomph. Or is it das oomph? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess that, that that's the end of this uh, particular installment. Uh, but tune in next time, and thank you both. Thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Martin Eden from director Pietro Marcello. Based on the classic novel by Jack London, this Venice and Toronto award winner was an official selection of the 57th New York Film Festival and comes to theaters starting April 17th. This week's podcast is sponsored by the River Run International Film Festival, March 26th through April 5th, featuring over 170 films and special guests, including Tony Bill and Helen Bartlett. Info at riverrunfilm.com slash getaway.